0: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 157, Joan of Arc. It's a long episode this week, folks, and so no weekly word. Otherwise, we'll all die of old age before the episode finishes, and none of us want that, do we? This week, you see, I have the priceless opportunity to use real dialogue from the days of yore. So the last time we were in France, England was still carrying all before them, continuing the tradition of Henry's glorious victories with the triumph at Verneuil in 1424. After Verneuil, confidence grew amongst the English and Normans that the English Lordship of Normandy was here to stay, and as a result many more Normans joined the ranks of Bedford's administration and associated their well-being with that of the English. This had a positive effect on English resources, especially the Norman estates, who accepted that their own defence was up to them to pay for. And also, they began to lick their lips with anticipation about the fruits for them of conquest of French territories to their south. Attracted by wealth and glory, as ever, the Norman nobility bought into the English dream. The same confidence affected the English, both noble and non-noble, who now came forward in much greater numbers to buy property in Normandy. The English commanders, Warwick, Suffolk, but most of all Salisbury, were confident, successful, and had expanded English conquests further south, but in 1426 there was a pause while Bedford was in England, and then in 1427 the preparation began for a major offensive. The Lancastrian dynasty was confident, bullish and ambitious. It would complete the great plan, not only of Henry V, but also his ancestor, Edward III, to be kings of all France. So, sorry, but a bit of geography is probably in order. Essentially, south of Normandy lay the counties of men, Anjou and Touraine. To the south of these counties lay the great fault line of western France, the Loire Valley running east to west. South of the Loire lay the great castle of Chinon, where Henry II had died, and close to the abbey of Fontevraud, resting place of the Angevins. It was Chinon where Charles VII, of course now calling himself king, given that his father had died, had taken up residence with his court. So the English aimed to push their conquests all the way to the Loire, capture the key crossings of said river. And once they had done this, the rest of France, the old heartlands of Anjouan power, Aquitaine, lay open in front of them. It's not entirely clear that the offensive in 1428 was intended to be aimed initially at Orléans. In fact, Bedford had planned to be attacking the town of Angers first. But whatever he would thought, it was the resourceful, experienced and successful Salisbury who was leading the English army, which could have been as big as 10,000 strong. And Salisbury swept confidently south from Paris, sweeping up castles and strong points as he went, all according to plan. Then he was meant to be carrying on west to the castle of Angers, but to Bedford's horror, instead he turned south towards Orléans. We don't quite know why, but part of the reason could have been personal. The Duke of Burgundy was dead set against an assault on Orléans – now, there is a suspicion that the Duke of Burgundy had been setting his cap at Mrs Salisbury at a wedding in Paris. As it happens, Salisbury's wife was one Alice Chaucer, granddaughter of the poet, and by all accounts, something of a looker. Now, no lord likes anyone setting their cap at their missus, however high and mighty, so it's just possible that Salisbury was in fact sending Burgundy a message. But whatever, Bedford didn't need to worry. Salisbury was a un he knew how to attack and capture a city. And his forces swarmed out skilfully to capture castles on the Loire west and east of Orléans until Orléans itself was cut off, and by October 1428 it was surrounded and the siege began in earnest. Having said that, it was always going to be a tough nut to crack. Orléans lay on the northern side of the River Loire with a bridge that connected the north and south sides of the river by way of an island. On the southern side of the river lay the critical fortress of La Tourelle, vital to the defence of Orléans, since without it the city couldn't be approached from the south and with it Orléans lay open to constant harassment. Salisbury charged ahead straight at the walls of Orléans but the assault was beaten off and so instead he turned his attention to the bridge, and within eleven days he had attacked and he would taken La Tourelle, that vital fortress at the southern end of the bridge. So Orléans looked doomed. But then the French had a stroke of luck. As Salisbury stood on the battlements of La Tourelle, looking towards Orléans and planning his next devious move, a cannonball hit the battlements, throwing up a deadly shower of shards and shrapnel. Salisbury was wounded and one week later he was dead. And that was a critical blow to the English. Salisbury's successor was a chap called William de la Poole. William was 32 and had been born the second son of the Earl of Suffolk. As a second son, he'd hopped over to France as soon as he was out of Napis, well, when he was 19, and off he went on the Agincourt campaign. It was a campaign that transformed his life though you might like to know that William's career in the end will not come to a good solution. But at Harfleur, his father was killed. At Agincourt, his brother was killed, so suddenly William had gone from second son, Giza Job level, to the Earl of Suffolk, although his lands would be in wardship for a couple of years yet. So Suffolk, as William shall now be called, had stayed in France and become a soldier, and 13 years later, here he was at Orléans. So Suffolk was experienced in the ways of the military, but as time was to prove, he was no Salisbury. All his activities so far had been under the command of the big boys Warwick and Salisbury. But now Bedford was giving him a shot at the big time. Suffolk decided that frontal assault was going to end up in death and destruction, mainly of the English, so he decided to starve Orléans into submission. So within a few weeks, Suffolk had surrounded Orléans with a string of fortresses and outworks and basically stitched it up like a kipper. He didn't have enough men to stop all movement in and out, but no major supplies could get through to the garrison. Meanwhile, Charles VII at Chinon was in a right old mess. No response of any coherence was coming from him or his court because once again, guess what, the French had split into factions. no. So bad was it that the estates urged Charles to make peace with Burgundy at any price. But then, in February 1429, things started to look up. Charles's factious court kissed and made up because they were shown a chance to make a difference, with the approach of Sir John Fastolf and 300 wagons full of herrings, and other essential supplies to keep the siege of Orléans going. Now, if the French could ambush them, the siege would have to be lifted. And they were pretty confident. They had the old Scots with them, and although they had been kicked all over northern France for the last 13 years, this was going to be different, because they had huge superiority in numbers and the element of surprise. But Fastolf heard them coming with their soft cushions. Before they could arrive, he'd unloaded all his wagons with their barrels of herrings and formed an impromptu defensive wall. Smelly, but effective. Never mind, thought the French, we've got cannon. We'll just blast them to smithereens and they'll die in an orgy of shrapnel and dried fish. This time it's the Scots who get the blame. Despite explicit orders not to attack, their contingent of 400 didn't listen and did just that. The French hesitated in confusion, do we go or not, and like a cricketer with a good length ball, didn't know whether to go forward or back, and Fastolf saw his chance. The herrings parted and out charged a splendid English cavalry, and before you could say Kedjury, the French and Scots were cut to pieces. Back in Chinon, the news of the Battle of the Herrings hit poor old Charles and his court like a cartload of dried fish. Charles was seriously advised to leg it to Scotland. Clearly no one had told him about the midges there in spring. But the French were down, and the French were pretty much out. So, now let me take you to Don Rémy. Don Rémy was a village, a surviving Armagnac enclave way out to the east of France, near Lorraine, surrounded by English and Burgundian controlled lands. In the village of Don Rémy was a couple, Jacques and Isabelle who had a daughter they called Jeannette. For the first 13 years of her life, there was nothing particularly unusual about Jeannette, or Joan, as history knows her, or nothing that we know about anyway. She would lead the animals to graze. She danced and sang at the traditional ceremony at the mystical oak tree nearby. Like every girl, she was taught to spin and to sew. But she lived in a world torn by war. Twice Burgundian soldiers raided Donremy, terrifying the villagers who thought their time had come. And then at the age of 13, Joan began to hear voices. And by the age of 17, those voices were telling her the most remarkable things. They were telling her that the King of France must have his kingdom back. And they were telling her that she herself had been chosen as God's instrument to deliver Charles' kingdom from the English and the Burgundians. I speak, of course, of Joan of Arc, or Mr. Arc, as Bill and Ted would have it. Now, clearly, Mr. Arc's story belongs to France, rather than England, but like the bridge at Montereux, it is simply too good a story not to steal. It's a story with so many elements, and so many contrasts, depending on how you look at it. Of incredible courage or blind fanaticism. Of the power of vision, confidence and spirit, to transform what people can achieve against all the odds. A story of how something happened that had absolutely no right to happen in the medieval world. A woman leading armies to victory. Of how Joan's visions, a bit like the weather forecast, may have got the timing wrong, but the big picture absolutely right. Anyway, in what follows, I am ably assisted by Izzy Girl, who is going to be the Maid of Orléans. Because as it happens, all the words of her trial were written down. And so we have this quite extraordinary record of the voice and words of Joan that has come down to us across the centuries. And I put a link on the website, by the way. It is a voice in the main of conviction and clarity. Joan explained how the visions came.
1: I was 13 when I heard a voice from God for my help and guidance. The first time that I heard this voice, I was very much frightened. It was midday in the summer in my father's garden. I had not fasted the day before. I heard this voice to my right, towards the church. Rarely do I hear it without it being accompanied also by a light. This light comes from the same side as the voice. Generally, it is a great light. Since I came into France, I have often heard this voice. It said to me two or three times a week, You must go into France. My father knew nothing of going. The voice said to me, Go into France. I could stay no longer. It said to me, Go, raise the siege which is being made before the city of Orléans. Go.
0: And so Joan went. She went, dressed as a man, with her hair cut short, because God had told her this is what she must do. But bear in mind that during the medieval world, this was an offence against God. The Bible said that women dressed like men was an abomination. There's absolutely no way that Joan should ever have been able to get to Chinon to see her king, or even get out of her village. But the depth of her conviction made people believe her. She made her parents believe her. She made the captain of the garrison in the nearby Armagnac town believe her. And her belief that the English and the Burgundians were the enemies of God. And her belief in her mission to give the kingdom to Charles was utter, complete and unshakable. To the point of being downright bloodthirsty. She was once asked if she had known any Burgundians and she replied...
1: I knew only one Burgundian at Doremy. I should have been quite willing for them to cut off his head, always had said it pleased God.
0: Joan was clear about what she wanted.
1: I had a great will and desire that my king should have his own kingdom.
0: Against all the odds, Joan reached Chinon, where, of course, it should have been absolutely impossible for a peasant girl dressed like a bloke to gain admittance to the King of France. But you have to remember when we are. This is medieval Europe, People believed absolutely that visions could happen and remembered that Charles was in the pit of despair. Charles was by no means a resolute or decisive man and he had a tendency towards credulity, what with his love of alchemy and all. It seems there may actually have been a king's messenger with the party that rode with Joan from Domremy to Chinon. So it's possible Charles had already heard of the maid and actually sent someone to get her and bring her to him. But now... Faced with the reality of her, Charles dithered, and he dithered horribly. Because it could be that Joan's visions were in fact not saints and angels. They could have been from the other side. They could be devils. And then he'd be damned or tricked. So there was all manner of investigation by his religious advisers, and in the end, the best they could come back with was the rather feeble opinion that she was a well-meaning and apparently innocent person. So why not test her out? So that's what Charles agreed to do. The maid was desperate to prove herself by saving the French at Orléans, so why not allow her to go? And just to seal the deal, Joan then announced that someone should go and find a sword, buried at the church at Fierbois. Off they went, and Julie found said sword. It's a miracle! Impressive, and it swung the debate. Charles gave the army to Joan, and Joan and the army set out for Orléans. A cynic might note that Joan had stayed at Fierbois on her way to Chinon, and that burying swords at altars was a regular medieval pastime. But hey. Before she went, Joan had a letter written and sent on her behalf. It demonstrates the absolute belief she had in what she was saying. Whatever you might think of visions and all that sort of thing, it's very, very difficult to think that Joan was faking it.
1: Duke of Bedford who call yourself regent of the kingdom of France. Give satisfaction to the king of heaven. Give up to the maid the keys of all good towns in France, which you have taken and broken into. Hear the message of the maid, who will shortly come upon you, to your very great hurt. King of England, I am a chieftain of war, and if this be not done, wheresoever I find your followers in France, I will make them leave, willingly or unwillingly. If they will not obey, I will have them put to death.
0: I have to say that's a level of certainty that it's just a bit difficult not to find irritating. But sadly for the English, she was to have some justification for her confidence. Joan slipped into Orléans with a few followers. A few followers because Charles wasn't a man to take a risk and he'd ordered the army he'd given to Joan to come home. If she's going to commit a miracle, after all, she doesn't need an army. Of course, Joan was distraught. She'd been given the task but not the wherewithal. And although the town welcomed her ecstatically and with wild enthusiasm, the army leaders themselves did no such thing, and they excluded her from war councils. And well you would, wouldn't you? But there was without doubt something in Joan that inspired. She knew no doubts. God was speaking to her through the angels. God was on the side of her king. A victory was inevitable. Somehow the grizzled commanders couldn't help but be one over two, and so they sent to Charles to send his army back, and he did. What happened next was without doubt quite remarkable, and as I say demonstrates just what a difference belief and self-confidence can make. It's by no means sure that Joan had any actual military influence over events, but what is for sure is that she was there on the front line, dressed in full armour, unthinkable for a woman, waving a banner and carrying the sword from Fierbois, The seven-month siege turned from a triumph just waiting to happen for the English into a disaster. One by one, the English encircling fortifications fell to French assault, Joan urging them on despite being repeatedly wounded. At last came the turn of the crucial and heavily defended Le Torel. At the height of the assault, Joan was wounded, struck, between the neck and the shoulder by a crossbow bolt, and dragged to one side. But nothing could keep her from the battle, and before long she was back, and by the evening of the 7th of May, 1429, le Torrel was back in the hands of the French. After seven months, the siege of Orléans was over. The south bank of the Loire was now in French hands, so Orléans could be resupplied at will, there was no point in the English sticking around. And the following day, Suffolk and Fastolf, gathered their army and marched away. And France had a new hero who had proved the truth of her vision, and nothing would be the same again. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. However, Suffolk and Fastolf didn't know they were beaten. They held three fortresses around Orleans, and as it happens, a new English army was on its way towards them. Just so happens that Beaufort had already been gathering an army to go on crusade against the Hussites in Bohemia. In desperation at the news from Orléans, his army was diverted to France. The Pope, it has to be said, was not impressed with his cardinal. The French gathered their forces for a month and then attacked along the Loire. With Joan and her banner at the head of every assault, it just took three days to capture those three fortresses. The first to fall was Yargau, where Suffolk himself was forced to surrender and captured. It would take three years to free himself on the payment of a massive £20,000 ransom. But never mind, Fastolf had finally arrived with the long-awaited reinforcements and an army of 5,000 stood ready to reverse the tide. It waited at the tiny village of Pâté. The Battle of Pâté went the way the French had expected Agincourt to go. Essentially, the French heavy cavalry charged the English archers, and at last they had the grace to be massacred, as the French knights always believed peasants should. And meanwhile, the mounted English men at arms, commanded by Fastolf himself, ran away. Why, you have to ask, did Pate end up as it did? The full story is unclear. It could be that the English archers were taken by surprise and had not planted their stakes. It could be a failure of leadership. The commander of the archers, Talbot, hotly accused Fastolf of cowardice, and the reputation stuck to Fastolf all his life, although he was cleared of the charge. It's difficult to imagine Henry V running away, or more, failing to be prepared. Joan was not finished, not by any means. She had promised to see the king crowned, and see him crowned, she would. Traditionally, French kings were crowned in the cathedral at Rheims. But Rheims was about as far away from Armagnac territory as you could get, way out northeast of Paris through miles upon miles of Burgundian and English-held land. Rheims itself was held by the Burgundian. Everyone knew it was an utterly absurd proposition going there to crown Charles. But Joan, for her part, Joan knew they would reach Rheims. She knew that her king would be crowned there because the voices had told her so. By this stage, the peasant girl who had broken all the rules had a moral ascendancy that is simply incredible. The thing that struck me most was a letter from no lesser person than the Count of Armagnac, asking for the advice of a humble peasant girl, no less. My very dear lady, I humbly commend myself to you and pray, for God's sake, that considering the divisions which are at this time in the Holy Church universal on the question of the popes, you will have the goodness to pray our Saviour Jesus Christ, that by his infinite mercy he may by you declare to us which of the three named is Pope in truth. And so on. Jeannette was now the ultimate authority. Charles dithered, Charles mathered, but eventually he was persuaded to go to Rheims. Bedford and Burgundy would have looked on at the march of Joan and Charles's army to Rheims, With absolute horror and disbelief. Fortress after fortress opened their gates to the maid and their king, captivated by the revelation she presented. Rheims itself opened her gates, and on the 17th of July, 1429, Charles was duly crowned King Charles VII of France, with Joan standing by with her banner, and kneeling at the end of the ceremony at the feet of her king. Charles now had an army of 12,000 in enemy territory. The English were in as much disarray as the French had been after Agincourt. Whenever the French did try to take a town, as often as not, it would open its gates. Towns north and east of Paris did so with gay abandon. It is difficult, however, to avoid the conclusion that Joan had a king who was not worthy of her. Because Charles wanted to return back south of the Loire where everything was safe. Eventually, he was persuaded to allow Joan to attack Paris, which she did with a furious assault on the 8th of September. But to her astonishment, when she wanted to continue the following day, Charles refused. It turned out that she had had just one day to prove herself again, by taking the best defended town in France. So Charles had his wish and retreated to the Loire and disbanded most of his army. As a result, Joan's prophecy that the English would be thrown out of France and France reunited was not achieved in the seven years she predicted, but who knows what might have happened if Charles had possessed even a portion of her courage. Over the next six months, Joan essentially seemed to kick her heels, unable to leave, unable to fulfil her vision. She wrote another fanatical letter, this time to the Hussites, who were literally fighting off the world in Bohemia in defence of their faith and freedom, and she ordered them to...
1: Remove your madness and foul superstition, taking away either your heresy or your lives.
0: Joan will be remembered for many things. Religious toleration won't be one of them. Every so often she's able to lead an attack on a town, sometimes gloriously successful, sometimes ending in failure. But her king was now after a diplomatic solution. And actually, Joan was now something of a problem and was getting in the way of Charles's preferred solution. Rather than bringing Burgundy to heel by war, he'd prefer to talk Philip round instead. In May 1430, Joan was given the chance to throw herself into action again. The town of Compiègne, north of Paris, was being attacked by English and Burgundians, eager to retake it. Joan rushed north with a small band of followers, including her younger brother Pierre. But as she led a sortie, she was cut off from her followers, surrounded, and forced to surrender to the Burgundians. At this point, Charles essentially abandoned the Maid of Orléans to her fate. It all worked out perfectly. Joan had transformed his cause, but was now in the way of an accommodation. She could be removed by Burgundy, allowing the boy all to be lanced, and Charles would carry none of the blame. And anyway... He'd given her a complete day to take Paris, and if God had been on her side, she'd have taken it. So clearly, God had deserted her. With Joan neatly martyred, he'd be free to run the war his way. Nope, it all worked out very well for the lad. While what comes next is still very much part of the national story of Joan of Arc, the French patron saint and national hero, it's also a very personal story. Because Joan was now put on trial for heresy. Now, one historical rubric of all of this is that what we have here is a purely politically motivated trial led by Venal, Burgundian and English clerics purely for the purpose of discrediting and removing a military threat to their cause. That the trial was clearly a farce with Joan denied any legal help to make sure she was convicted. This misunderstands the medieval mind and the context and is far too simplistic. Yes, I have no doubt Bedford was desperate for Joan to be condemned as a heretic. But actually, it was the University of Paris who insisted that Joan be tried for heresy. As far as Bedford was concerned, he had been happy to deal with her as a military enemy, no problem. No need for all this trial stuff. After all, everyone could see that God had deserted her and allowed her to be captured. Yes, the clerics were all from the English and Burgundian world, but what else would you expect? And yes, the trial was a farce, in exactly the same way as every trial run by the Inquisition of the Catholic Church was conducted, before the condemned was handed over to the secular authorities to carry out the sentence. In this, Joan's trial was entirely unexceptional. What is exceptional is the detail we have of the trial and the courage and conviction of the 18-year-old, illiterate peasant girl who faced all on her own, without a friend, without advice, without experience, imprisoned, probably underfed, 45 of the leading and most learned figures of the Church, out to trip her up if they possibly could. Now, we like heretics in England, because after all we are a nation of heretics according to the Catholic Church, and for a period of our history it is our heresy that will define us. So it's very difficult not to be on Joan's side in this, despite the fact that she had been quite prepared to mete out exactly the same treatment to the Hussites that she received for herself. However, let us also be fair to the clerics in the trial, and indeed to the Inquisition, I guess. Okay, I don't know, maybe there were some lunatics who enjoyed the pain and suffering of it all, but the vast majority were doing it to save the immortal soul of the person concerned, and to protect society from what they saw and what society saw as a cancer that could let the devil back into the world. The leading investigator, Bishop Cochon, several times worked to get Joan to a point where he can avoid her being killed or avoid her being tortured. If she will just recant, she will save both her soul and her body. They were sincere in this. In fact, both the clerics and Joan were united by their fanaticism. If you take the personal angle out of this, then a plague on both your houses would seem to me to be the best response. After the fanaticism of the Spanish War and the Civil War... England will become a country defined as much by its suspicion of fanatics as for its heresy. So, the trial. Joan was kept alone in prison. She was desperate. At one point, she jumped from a 70-foot-high window to escape, and yet survived the fall. But her confidence in her God remained undimmed. The angels still spoke to her. God would intervene. God would save her and guide her answers. The trial was led by one Pierre Cochon, Bishop of Beauvais. Let me pick out a few of the key lines of inquiry and things he was trying to answer. 1. Was Joan presuming to deny the authority of the Church? If so, she must submit to the authority of the Church. Was Joan presumptuously claiming to know more about the Word of God than the Church knew? Wearing men's clothing was against the word of God. She must be talked out of that. There are many people who hear voices, and we all believe in that. But are these voices from God or the devil? One way to find out about that was to get the detail from Joan. Were these angels and saints who spoke to her physical? If they were physical, that meant they were not in fact from God, they were from the devil, because it had been decided by the church, that angels were only spiritual beings. So whether these beings were physical or spiritual was absolutely essential to everything that followed. Joan's approach to the trial was stunningly tough and intelligent. Information had to be extracted from her over 15 formal examinations. Every nugget of information was hard won by the investigators. Right from the start, she examined and fought everything. The first thing Cochon asked her to do was to swear to tell the truth.
1: I know not upon what you wish to question me. Perhaps you may ask me of things which I ought not to tell you.
0: Swear to speak truth on the things which shall be asked you concerning the faith, and of which you know.
1: Of my father and my mother, and of what I did after taking the road to France, willingly will I swear. But of the revelations which have come to me from God... To no one will I speak or reveal them, save only to Charles, my king, and to you I will not reveal them, even if it cost me my head, because I have received them in visions and by secret counsel, and am forbidden to reveal them.
0: For the vast majority of the proceedings, this is the tenor of the conversation. Joan was not intimidated or overwhelmed one whit. She trusted herself, she trusted her sharp intelligence, she trusted her voices, and most of all, She trusted her God. You have before and many times sought, we are told, to get out of the prison where you are detained, and it is to keep you, more surely, that it has been ordered to put you in irons.
1: It is true I wish to escape, and so I wish still. Is not this lawful for all prisoners?
0: Sometimes her tone was even contemptuous. When the voice showed you the king, was there any light? Pass on. Did you see an angel over the king?
1: Spare me, pass on.
0: But Cochon was both clever and relentless. A bit like the pursuit of the Lollards. They knew that the devil literally lay in the detail. But in some areas, they simply couldn't trap her. They wanted her to admit that she claimed to know more about God than the Holy Mother Church did, which was an unspeakable heresy as far as the Catholic Church was concerned. But she sidestepped this cleverly. Do you know if you are in the grace of God?
1: If I am not, may God place me there. If I am, may God so keep me.
0: Wah, wah, oops. No way through there for the Inquisitors. They relentlessly went for the women's dress thing. And again, Joan was uncompromising. Would you like to have a woman's dress?
1: Give me one and I will take it and be gone. Otherwise, no. I am content with what I have, since it pleases God that I wear it.
0: But the big one was the nature of her visions. Was there evidence in the descriptions that Joan gave that the angels she saw were real, physical? Because if they could, then in the best theology of the church, they were from the devil, and Joan would be convicted. At first, they got nothing definitive. Did you see St Michael and these angels bodily? And in reality?
1: I saw them with my bodily eyes as well as I see you. When they went from me, I wept. I should have liked to be taken away with them.
0: But over time, Joan spoke more and more and gave more and more detail. And eventually Joan told them how the angel had brought the crown to her king, had walked up the steps in glory. This was damning. This was a physical being carrying a crown, walking on the floor, and unless she would submit, Joan was now lost. The trial clergy now try hard to get Joan to submit to the will of the church, recant and save her life and immortal soul. This in spite of pressure from Warwick and the English that she must burn. Joan did her best to avoid the traps, but despite her equivocation, she couldn't quite manage it.
1: I am a good Christian. I have been baptised. I shall die a good Christian.
0: As you ask that the Church should administer the Eucharist to you, why will you not submit to the Church? It would be administered to you at once.
1: Of this submission I will say no more than I have said. I love God. I serve him. I am a good Christian. I wish to help and maintain the Church with all my power.
0: In the final session before the public trial... They said, Do you not, then, think yourself bound to submit your words and deeds to the church militant, or to any other but God?
1: What I have always said in the trial and held, I wish still to say and maintain. If I were condemned, if I saw the fire lighted, the faggots prepared, and the executioner ready to kindle the fire, and if I myself were in the fire, I would not say otherwise, and would maintain to the death all I have said.
0: That was now to be put to the test, because at last then, on the 24th of May, 1430, Joan was brought to the square at Rouen. A high platform had been built so that the vast crowd could all see her. And they tried one more time to get her to submit to the will of the church. And there's no doubt that Joan was gripped by fear and doubt. All through the questions and trial, she had been sure that God would save her, that she would be freed. But now here she was in front of the fire, and no saviour was in sight. And as the sentence was read to her, she finally broke.
1: Inasmuch as the clergy decide that the apparitions and revelations which I have had are not to be maintained or believed, I will not believe nor maintain them. In all, I refer me to you and to our Holy Mother Church.
0: Joan was forced to sign a declaration on all the articles of her fault, and was led away back to prison. There she finally agreed to put on woman's clothes again. She was to spend the rest of her life in prison. But then, when the Inquisitors returned on the 29th of May, they found her once more in man's clothing. The voices, said Joan, had spoken to her again. The voices, Joan said, had told her that
1: You have done a great evil in declaring that what you have done was wrong. All I said in revoked, I said in fear of the fire.
0: In the margin the clerk has written Responsio mortifera, the fatal response, because this confirmed that Joan was now a lapsed heretic. There were no more chances and she must burn. All the inquisitors could hope for now was that Joan would save her immortal soul by recanting again, but she'd still have to burn. And on the 29th they begged her to change her mind back again, but all to no avail. And so, at nine o'clock on the thirtieth of May, fourteen thirty, Joan was led back again into the square in front of the assembled crowd. She was placed on the scaffold, the sentence was read, and she was excommunicated. There was no chance for her to speak. An English soldier held a cross in front of her, the fire was lit, and the eighteen-year-old peasant girl from Domremy burned. When she was dead, the fire was pulled away from her charred body to show the crowd that she was indeed dead, and then the fire was pulled back and her body turned to ashes. So there you are, quite a story, and I've gone on too long, but an extraordinary tale I'm sure you'll agree, quite exceptional in the Middle Ages or in any time, whatever you think of Joan, the English or the French in the story, still exceptional. And the Hundred Years' War would certainly never be the same again. Folks, I have to confess that the draw for the silver penny is not yet completed. Hopefully, we'll be able to make the announcement you're all waiting for next week. Meanwhile, there are some donators I need to thank. Simon, Megan, Gareth, Russell, Lewis, Mary, Oak, Jabal, Nancy, Jonathan, Clive and Bob. Thank you very much indeed. Next week, it's the defining moment in the Hundred Years' War. The event that starts the countdown to the end. Until then, thanks for listening. For all your comments on the website, iTunes, Facebook and all that, good luck everyone and have a great week.